is the system of blockchain, if you want to take the technical aspect out of it, we're talking about global agreement here through code. It's not, it's less of a technological innovation than it is just a way of governance, of governing what we actually see as our baseline for truth. Jordan Mack is a software developer specializing in blockchain and mobile applications. In 2011, he'd worked with the Bitcoin core team to solve key issues and then moved on to other projects such as Ethereum, Cardano and Horizon. Since the start of this year, he has been fully involved in the Nervos network. He has written multiple blockchain-related white papers and founded many blockchain projects along the way. In this episode, we talk about buying his first Bitcoin when it was only $2 and what happened to them, early Bitcoin community including Satoshi, Halfini and Gavin Anderson, mass adaption of cryptocurrency and some use cases, crypto regulation, smart money and Bitcoin, the Nervous network and finding projects you're passionate about. Now let's get on with the show. Hi Jordan, welcome to the Pay Now Buy Letter. Thank you so much for being here. So how did you first get started with blockchain and what actually drove your curiosity to that technology? Yeah, well, my, my start in blockchain and my interest actually started back in 2008. That's the year that I started first investing in the stock market. And nice. yeah, I was a very naive investor at the time. I was just kind of throwing money into various stocks and then, of course, at the end of 2008 and 2009 was when the, the great uh, recession started and the stock market crashed. And it, it caused me to take a look, uh, a much closer look at the economics of the, of the world, basically, and of central banking. And I, slow, I slowly started to realize as I was listening to all these podcasts and doing all kind of reading that everything I had been taught about economics in school didn't make any sense at all. And so then a couple of years go by and I can, I'm continuing at this point to learn more and more about economics, listening to uh, people like Peter Schiff and Ron Paul talk about uh, their views on it. And then I start to hear the rumblings of something called Bitcoin. And this was in 2009 or 2010. I don't remember the exact time period because I kind of ignored it at the time. Uh, it was, you know, some, some people were making noise about this and they were describing it very, very poorly. And, you know, they were not selling it very well at all. And um, I thought at the time that it was just another digital currency. Bitcoin is not the first digital currency out there by far. There's been many attempts at it. Uh, but it's the first one that's actually been decentralized in a way that's actually powerful and makes sense. So I, I take my entry, my true entry, I, I always stated it as being 2011, because that's when I actually sat down. I read the white paper and I got actively engaged in the uh, Bitcoin community. Right. So did you ever get the chance to invest back in the day? Um, I did. Um, when, okay. uh, when I first started in 2011, Bitcoin was priced at under a dollar. And I didn't jump into it right away. I watched it for a little while. And, it, you know, it was, this was just like today. It was very volatile back then, too. It was bouncing all over the place. But eventually I, I got in at two dollars. And that's when I made my main right. big investment. That's amazing. That's great. So. Are you, do you have a drive a Lambo now? No, no Lambo. I'm not rich <laughs> at all. Unfortunately, I did not take the advice, the wise advice of people who told me not to store your money on an exchange. Oh. And through a very unfortunate series of many events, I ended up losing all of the Bitcoin I had purchased in Mt. Gox and subsequent other events like that. So I don't have any of it anymore, unfortunately. It would oh, have been that's... worth many millions of dollars today, yes. 
yeah an, an amazing story to tell as well <laughs> it's a painful story <laughs> yeah i know i don't know how you bear with that it's 10,000x from there isn't it and much more legs to go how can people avoid it basically well a lot of the problems that existed back then they do still exist today but the systems involved in protecting these things are becoming much better uh, you know the the hardware wallets that we have today are very secure and we didn't have anything like that back then uh, when i actually first started in bitcoin um, i was a person who reported several critical issues in the wallet and one of them had to do with uh, the encryption of the wallet. When I first started, there was absolutely no encryption. If somebody was to come into your computer and take your wallet.dat file, it was completely unencrypted. They'd have everything. If a virus took it, something like that, and there were viruses out there that would spread around and try to steal this file. Didn't even have basic password encryption. So we're talking about something that really started at zero and has now evolved to a point where uh, things like Coinbase custody are, are pretty much bulletproof. Now the average person is probably going to start using services like that. That's where I suspect the industry will go. Most users who, you know, are there, um, they're storing their money in the bank today. They're not quite ready to take that step where they're gonna be their own bank 100%. So they're gonna trust somebody like Coinbase Custody and that's gonna be keeping their money safe. And I think that's, that's perfectly adequate for the near and possibly long-term future. Obviously you worked somewhere close to that field. So what, what's your career background? What did you major in and where did you work? What projects did you work on initially before getting into blockchain? Right, well, I had a, a very early start. Uh, I started engineering when I was about 13. I was trying to program video games because that's what I was very into at the time. And I slowly just turned that into a career and worked forward with that. Um, I discovered you know, the internet when it was just starting to take off and that opened up a completely new direction for me. And I've quickly found that engineering, the possibilities of being able to create these things that people could interact with was much more enticing than just playing a video game or even building a video game. So that took me naturally to a, a progression in web development of web, web apps. And then later I would also take on uh, mobile applications with uh, primarily the iPhone and Android. And so I would um, eventually start my own company in around 2013, uh, doing uh, development and running small teams where I'd work usually with uh, small teams and as well as some Fortune 500 companies nice. working on various projects here and there. But, you know, like I said, I got really started in uh, Bitcoin in 2011. So that was kind of running parallel to my career for a while. And um, it's there's a lot of parallels between web app development and dApp development, obviously. The two are pretty much one and the same. And the same with um, mobile app development and the, the need for mobile applications that are blockchain enabled. So there was a, a natural overlap there. It became very easily easy for me to move kind of a lateral shift into blockchain. And so around, I think it was um, 2016, 2017, I founded a project called Rigidbit, uh, which was aimed at uh, making it much easier for people to get um, their projects um, into blockchain. And, um, and also, you know, during this time period, I became involved with other, many other projects, such as Ethereum, of course, the big one for smart contracts, which finally really enabled all the functionality that we wished that Bitcoin had, but yeah. didn't have, is finally possible on Ethereum. And then other projects like um, Zcash and Horizon, which enabled privacy that we had only dreamed about in the past as well. You know, attempts that were made back in Bitcoin, but we realize now are just not good enough for true privacy. And to me, this, this is what really opened my eyes to seeing and believing that this is something that could 
actually take off around the world and get mass adoption. When you have these three pillars here, you have the currency, the actual uh, the decentralized currency. You have the full pro uh, programming Turing complete um, programming languages of Ethereum, and then you have the privacy aspect. These three here, I believe, are the basically the trifecta for mass adoption. And it will still take a long way to get there, of course. Like the, the technologies themselves are still very unrefined, but we're on the course to do that. Um, so before we get a bit deeper into Bitcoin, do you mind explaining what blockchain is to the average individual who is listening to this podcast? Uh, sure, sure. So blockchain is, is basically, to sum it up in a single word, I would just call it, it, it is truth. All right. When you form a blockchain, everything that you put into the blockchain can no longer be changed again. And it, the way that it does this is by storing it on thousands of different computers where it's basically the majority vote guarantees that uh, what the, the history is. And it's all cryptographically signed, so it's very, very difficult to, to change. It's nearly impossible. And the, the incentives of the systems are aligned so that if you really wanted to change it, it would cost you so much money to do so that yeah. it would be, it wouldn't be even make any sense. You'd spend, you know, much more money than you would stand to ever gain. So by storing the truth at the very base level, it enables all these properties on top of it. The obvious one is what we see with Bitcoin, a currency where it's a distributed ledger system where nobody can cheat. We can see every transaction that's ever happened in the past. And so we know what everybody's balance is. And you can then adapt all these other systems on top of it, like Ethereum has done, where you're dealing now with trustless systems where the chain itself is serving as the intermediary party. So you don't have to trust people because when you look around the world at all these security problems that we keep having, a lot of them, unfortunately, it's because of people in the middle who are the people who make the mistakes. So if you have everybody guaranteed to use a single protocol around the world, um, they can all agree on this. They, it's, this is really what it is, is the system of blockchain. If you wanna take the technical aspect out of it, we're talking about global agreement here through code. It's, not, it's less of a technological innovation than it is just a way of governance, of governing what we actually see as our baseline for truth. You were obviously initially part of the Cyberfunk community. So any chance you've met Satoshi or the creators of Bitcoin? Uh, no, actually, I, I unfortunately never got to talk to Satoshi. He had uh, left the project by the time I had started to become very deeply involved with it. Um, and people always ask me, who do you think it actually was? <laughs> um, I, I, I thought it was, at the, at the early stages, I thought it was Gavin Andreessen um, because yeah. he was one of the people that I interacted with quite a bit directly. And he, um, he was the guy that Satoshi basically handed the keys to the project over to. Um, but I don't believe that any, any longer. I now believe that it was probably the, the late Hal Finney who happened to unfortunately get very ill just around the time that Satoshi disappeared. And when you really look at his background and his beliefs, he fits it pretty much to a key. So I think that was the guy we were looking for. So unfortunately, Hal Finney passed away. Do you think he'll be proud of how far Bitcoin has come so far, six years from his date of passing away? I think that he would be completely overwhelmed with joy of what yeah. he spawned not just because of Bitcoin, but because more because of the entire ecosystem. Like there's a lot of debate in the Bitcoin community of, has it gone the right direction? It seems to have gravitated away from digital cash, which is what 
you know, the original white paper said it was supposed to be. But the, the movement in whole, the cryptocurrency movement is, is alive and well, and it's thriving better than he could have ever envisioned. So I think he'd be very happy with it. That's amazing. So I see like there's a lot of people who are using their time to actually find who Satoshi is instead of focusing on projects. I've, I found this story where some people actually chased Halfini, if I'm not wrong. This was found in the book Digital Gold. So I found that pretty interesting as well. Within the Bitcoin community, you talked about Halfini and Gavin. Who has inspired you the most to actually contribute to the system? Uh, that would actually be uh, Gavin Andreessen for sure. It's, it's not really for the reasons you would suspect. It's, um, it's a lot, he made significant technical contributions, but his, his um, guidance in the project and the, the way that he was extremely, um, he was always extremely diplomatic in resolving problems. And when you're dealing with something like Bitcoin, that's really trying something new. They're trying to be a truly decentralized project with no figurehead, right? But there's still a need where humans, we live in hierarchies and they need some guidance. And he provided that guidance in, in a way that hasn't really been done before. And so, you know, the younger version of myself who was much less patient and much more prone to getting angry and yelling at people and stuff, <laughs> all of us. calmed me down. He, he, he calmed me down. He showed me things about myself and interacting with him that I needed to, you know, take a step back here and really think about what we're doing and what the project's trying to do. And, and focus on what's important. So I would say that he's actually my biggest influence. Awesome. So you actually got the opportunity to work with him. Was it on Bitcoin itself or other cryptocurrency projects? It was on Bitcoin uh, to a lesser extent, although he won't actually know who I was because I operated not under one, but several different aliases when interacting uh -huh. with him. So it's, it's very interesting. I know him much more than he knows me. Okay. So... Does he know this now? Obviously he does. I, no, actually yeah. I haven't bothered. Oh. I have not bothered to even bother him with it. I interacted with him on Twitter once in a while, but uh, he, do, he doesn't know. And I haven't bothered to tell him the story. I uh, wonder how many people like that are there, like with the initial group of people who started Bitcoin. There must be so many anonymous people who've actually contributed to Bitcoin, but the world doesn't know. There's quite a few. There's quite a few. There's a lot of people who, who contribute in various ways. It's not always code. There's a lot of people who are contributing just thoughts and concepts to try to drive the thing forward. And a lot of these people also, I, I'd have no idea who they were. They were just a name in a chat room. And, um, you know, I still remember some of the things they said. I probably have some logs somewhere, but I have no way of contacting these people. And I've interacted the same way with many other projects as well, um, including on Ethereum and Horizon and, and Zchat. A lot of people just prefer to remain anonymous and, and that's fine. It's unfortunate though, because you know, these, some of these people are very interesting people and you wish that you could continue to have a, a relationship with them in some regard, but they tend to just kind of float away over time. Yeah, yeah. And Gavin, the last time I read about him, he has moved on from Bitcoin and gone to Bitcoin Cash, why do you think that is? Has he lost hope on Bitcoin or is he, does he have a bigger vision for cryptocurrency in general? Yeah, there's, there's a, a very confusing story about what happened behind that. But okay. um, ultimately, they, they pushed him out. The core team, the people who came into Bitcoin ended up pushing him out over a disagreement. Um, and 
uh, Gavin believed that the block size of Bitcoin should be increased. Um, and many of them do. I do as well. Um, and I think this was a big mistake on the, the part of Bitcoin because they, they refused to make this compromise and they, the community got split. Um, Gavin Andreessen and Roger Veer are two of the strongest members of the community. And I think it's a tremendous loss to Bitcoin for having them exit. Uh, you know, and Bitcoin Cash, it has its avenues, it has its problems. But when you really look at the project, both projects as a whole, I mean, there's merit to both sides. Um, but the split shouldn't have happened. There should have been some kind of a compromise there because there was too much of a, a divide here. And we see the rise of other cryptocurrencies come up as well just because of this, this argument. And it's not completely non-productive. Yeah. So what, how exactly was the community back then? How has it evolved over time over the last decade? The interesting thing about the Bitcoin community is that it's been highly adversarial since the very beginning. Okay. You, you, when you come into the community, it is, it's explained to you sometimes, not very politely, that you're expected to fight for your ideas to rise to the top. And nobody will support you unless they are convinced. And taking this, this type of an approach, it has merit to it, I have to say that. But there's also a, you know, a side to it that makes it much more difficult to work with. There's a lot of infighting in the community. There's a lot of uh, unfortunate politics that come into play and people trying to shove their idea to the top, not necessarily because it's better, but just because they want to win. Yeah. And so that's the way that the community has always operated. Now, when you take a, a look at something like Ethereum is the polar opposite, where people are much more open to listening uh, to various ideas. Now, the same is true. They might not, they might not listen to you. You, you do probably do have to push a little bit but the general approach to it is much more inviting. And so when you, you see these two different approaches, they, it's kind of hard to say which one is necessarily better. I don't think one is better. They're different, better for different approaches. In most scenarios, I believe that the Ethereum community's approach of being much more open and inviting is a better approach to, um, to building communities in the current environment. Now, if we entered an environment where um, all cryptocurrency was made illegal throughout the entire world, that type of a scenario, Bitcoin would thrive because they've, okay. they're already set up for it. They're already set up to fight. Banning Bitcoin would actually be bad for the country, isn't it? Because people who own Bitcoin can still continue to own it. Yeah, well, it's, it's notoriously difficult to, to actually ban any cryptocurrency because the it only needs a single copy of the ledger sitting on one computer in the entire world to keep it alive. Yeah. And when it's, it's uh, spread out through all kinds of different computers throughout the entire world, it is basically impossible. The only thing that you can do to kill a cryptocurrency is to create one that's better and move people over to it. Yeah. And so if for any country to ban a cryptocurrency, ban Bitcoin, it's largely a negative to them because they're excluding themselves from the technology that's going to power the rest of the world. I mean, this is, this is, there are remarkable changes and possibilities that are going to happen with this technology. And I don't think this is going to happen overnight. We're talking about decades here. But for any, for any country to exclude themselves from that, they're excluding them from the financial future of the world. We're talking about a system of superior money here. If you try to go back to and remain with the existing fiat currency systems, this is, these are systems that throughout the world have proven themselves throughout history over and over again, hundreds of times that they always fail, right? It's time for something new. 
what does cryptocurrency need for that mass adoption? Is it uh, more technical advanced or more government support? Or is it the need for people to understand it better? I think it's a lot of things. It's definitely the tech maturity still needs to happen. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, things in blockchain, cryptocurrency that we're still trying to figure out. I think that we're on the right course, but there's definitely different avenues to try. And ultimately, uh, we just have to try all these different avenues. Fortunately, there's thousands of companies out there that are willing to, to run these tests. So we'll see which one comes out on top. But it's going to take time. Everybody wants these things, especially investors. They want these things to happen overnight. And I can tell you from being involved on it, we want that too. But it takes years. It takes years of dedicated work, a lot of thought, just to figure out how these systems are going to operate because they're operating in a way that's very different from traditional programming. I mean, we're really on the bleeding edge of technology here. It hasn't been done before and we have to come up with new solutions. So in addition to that, there need to be a lot of things that are going to happen. Uh, network effects are very important for different cryptocurrencies. I mean, that is one of the core values of what makes it successful. So the more adoption it gets, the higher value it has exponentially. And right now the adoption is very low. And you know, usage in the daily daily world, paying for something, it's it's non-existent at this point. And so I think that really what the change has to come for on that aspect to make it easier for users is we probably need a company like like Apple to finally pull the trigger and say we're adding, you know, the cryptocurrency to Apple Wallet, and we're going to make it that much easier. And once something like that happens, I think it will, it may open the floodgates for what you'll see on a real real world adoption. Not just what, you know, yeah. they, they keep running the headlines saying we're getting real. No, it's not. It's not happening yet. Not like it's going to. There's another theory I had. So basically back in 2000, dot-com crash, we had internet, which you were fascinated about, but people hoped and ex expected too much from them and the infrastructure wasn't ready. But in 2020, we have the infrastructure for internet to scale globally and flourish. So do you think we can draw parallels between where blockchain is now, where the infrastructure is not ready for mass adoption yet, and in the future it will be? Yes, abs absolutely. And that's um, a great that you bring up this point because there's a lot of technologies out there. When you look at where they started and where they are today, they're completely different. Like I'll give you a couple personal examples. Uh, back in the mid nineties, I had a family member ask me if they should buy a digital camera. My answer to them was no. And the reason was because they were extremely expensive and the quality was terrible. And social sharing sites, you know, the Instagrams and Facebooks didn't exist back then. What would you do? You'd have this, this, your photos on this card and they would sit on this card. And if you wanted to see them again, you'd have to print them out, right? That doesn't mean that I was saying digital cameras are complete garbage. Don't ever buy one, right? I was saying at the time, the technology wasn't ready. Obviously today we have every smartphone has a, a video recorder and camera in it, and it's, it's, it's amazing, right? It's, it's foolish not to have something like that now. But back then it just wasn't worth the investment at the time. So that was my recommendation. And another one that was just like that was also TV on the internet. You know, I, when we, we look at the first version of this, this tiny little square, horrible, it looked terrible. Like it barely works, skip all the time. Like that was not gonna, you know, be better than TV, you know? And obviously now we have things like Netflix, which have dominated the scene, right? There's a, it's, it takes time for these technologies to mature, but when you, once they do, you see what they can actually become. They're, they're the superior alternative. 
And that's exactly what we're going to see with cryptocurrency as well. Like those who truly understand it see that this is a, a completely superior form of money. And there's tremendous amount of power behind blockchain. Uh, but it's going to take a while to get there. And, you know, there's always the headlines that say it's around the corner or mass adoption's coming. Like I'm one of the people who I like to look at things realistically, right? I don't want to tell yeah. somebody it's around the corner when it's not. I think it's more than 10 years away still. But when it does happen, it's it's going to happen in a very big way. Yeah, and we've, just talking about Bitcoin, we've only gone through maybe three or four cycles and only in the last cycle, like most people were aware of Bitcoin. So there'll be a lot more cycles to get your hands on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. We talked about how Square and even PayPal, I think PayPal introduced Bitcoin in their Venmo app as well. Do you think anyway credit cards are going phasing out of our system? Like I don't really use my credit card anymore. I just use my phone. So in that case, do you think Bitcoin or cryptocurrency more broadly have the ability to replace credit cards? I believe that one day it will. Now, this is, you know, a, a strong, uh, there's a strong opposing view from Samson Mao of Bitcoin Core, um, or I guess Blockstream technically, who believes he loves his credit card and he, he loves to go around saying that he loves his credit cards over Bitcoin and how terrible of a payment system Bitcoin is. I disagree with him 100% on this, right? Maybe Bitcoin isn't a, a great payment system right now, but when you look at the cryptocurrency as a whole, there's tremendous potential there. And we're talking about a very fragile system. The credit card system goes down from time to time. Bitcoin has not gone down you know, pretty much since it began. And so like you're talking about a global payment system, which is very immature at this time, right? And talking about a credit card system, which has been around for a while, but is very expensive when you look at the whole about how much money it takes to operate. There's potential there and it will flip at some point. Once the technology is at a point where it is easy enough to use and the fees go low enough, which we will hit some point, not necessarily with Bitcoin, but probably with some other coins, it's an eventuality that all of a sudden companies will want to shift to this. Like we've seen movements uh, in my, uh, my hometown of San Francisco where companies, uh, stores tried to stop accepting credit cards, right? They tried to shift over to cash. It's not that unusual to see that. They usually fail because there's such a, you know, especially in the financial district where I used to work, everybody wants to use a credit card. So they're pretty much forced to, but they know that they're spending a lot of money on this. They're looking for alternatives. So I think it's just an eventuality that uh, eventually credit cards will be phased out in favor of cryptocurrency. Yeah. So for that to happen, wouldn't fiat have to be replaced as well? Because that's what people ultimately use and give the value give value because if people can't pay tax with whatever crypto there is, there is really no value in that crypto for a broad, broad use. That's a hard one to say. And my yeah. best guess on that is, is probably <clears throat> that it never will be. Because when you're talking about the entire world and all the countries in it, we're, we're talking about remarkably different cultures with different ways of governing. And we're not necessarily one world here. And that's, yeah. that's a strength in the world is that we take different avenues. So the way that they're operating is different and they're not going to all operate on a single cryptocurrency or a single fiat currency. Some of them are going to want to 
definitely hang on to the benefits of fiat. And there are benefits to fiat. We just saw one here in 2020 with the pandemic where they were able to um, print all this money. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing necessarily. <laughs> There's obviously a downside yeah. to that. But you have to acknowledge that this has prevented a crash, which is probably going to happen anyway, but it's temporarily alleviated it. And this is one of the benefits of fiat is that it can be printed out of control in certain scenarios. Um, well, we all, we're still waiting to see the downside. I mean, we, I, we just saw the entire, I believe I saw the statistic on the United States uh, money supply grew by over 20% in the last yeah. year. And the year is not over yet. It's going to, it's out of control. I mean, we may very well see the end of the dollar within the next couple of years. That's a genuine possibility. Um, but when you look at history and the, the failure of every fiat currency in the past, it makes you wonder, well, you know, why, haven't, uh, a, why hasn't a nation moved over to cryptocurrency as their national currency? And I think that they probably will. China's taking a big move at that. I don't think that they're going to adopt a, a limited supply like Bitcoin. Um, but you'll, you're going to see more and more countries start to look at that option. And I think it is a matter of time before one of them decides to make a move to, to Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency as their national. Yeah. So say if a country adopts a cryptocurrency, wouldn't that actually make it easier to produce more money and print more money? Because it's just, you know, a keyboard, just type another zero. It wouldn't it become more centralized in that case. Well, it really depends on yeah, which, which model they choose to follow. If they're going on a centralized model, then it's not really a cryptocurrency by everybody's definition, yes. right? Yeah. We're, we're talking about something like Ripple, where they can just make it as they want to. And um, I, I would say that it's not necessarily going to be any different than it is today. I mean, that's pretty much what they already do, right? It's the same yeah. thing, except, <laughs> except they'd be able to interact with the, the cryptocurrency systems out there um, much more easily. They'd be able to spread their currency throughout the world because they're interacting with the same systems. And in that case, it's just a matter of technical um, compatibility. But I, I believe that at some point, some currency will may actually decide to make the move where they adopt a, a truly decentralized currency like Bitcoin or one of these others, where they're not in control of the actual currency supply. And in that case, they, they may see a tremendous amount of appreciation if they're smart enough to manage their money properly. Yeah, fair enough. So also with Bitcoin, Bitcoin is currently the largest in crypto. It's got over 65% of market cap. So replacing Bitcoin for another advanced technology would be extremely hard. And also on the other side, do you see Bitcoin as a true leader in the decades to come or will it be definitely replaced by a better technology. Well, with Bitcoin in particular, it has such a following and such a strong brand name. I think that it's here to stay in one form or another. You know, a while back, I had a conversation with a few people on just a kind of a basic thought experiment of what is happening with Bitcoin. The fees are so high that people can't use it to move around very easily anymore, right? It's very expensive. Um, so it started um, moving over to the Ethereum blockchain as in wrapped Bitcoin and being used over there. And now if it's riding on, on Ethereum as wrapped Bitcoin, what do you actually need the original Bitcoin chain for, right? Um, and if the Bitcoin chain disappeared, would the wrapped Bitcoin still have value? Now, this is just a thought experiment. There's no actual answer to this other than we'd have to see it happen. 
But I believe that even if Bitcoin was to disappear, it would be immediately replaced by something else that takes that name. So it, the, techno the underlying technology of Bitcoin is actually the least important aspect of it. I see Bitcoin as being here permanently. Now, which one actually becomes dominant uh, as the you know, base layer technology specifically, that's completely up in the air. I'm actually surprised that Ethereum hasn't passed it yet um, because I, in my opinion, the technology is clearly much further along. And there's a lot of other coins out there that are very, that are showing very strong potential. Um, you know, Cardano is another one I've invested in, I believe very strongly. And I'm involved with Nervos uh, now, which I think it has tremendous potential. All of these could be what I see as being um, players in the base layer arena eventually, where ultimately there will be several major coins at the base layer. And ultimately the user, <coughs> excuse me, the user probably won't even have to know which base layer they're operating on. I think that's the true vision is once it, there's this decoupling, once the user experience is so easy that they don't care anymore what they're, they just have the tokens on their phone. You know, that's all they care about. They don't care about the base layer anymore. Major problem that's talked about with Bitcoin is the transaction speed and how they compare it with Visa and MasterCard. I think Visa was about 24,000 transactions per second, whereas Bitcoin's only seven. So would that actually be bad for it to be adopted and used for transactions going forward? Well, at the base layer, it's, it's going pretty slow on that. But there's a lot of other technologies out there that are investigating different ways to speed that up, both on layer one and layer two. Now, yeah. layer two is the interesting thing that many need to pay, start paying attention to because all the chains are gravitating this way, uh, including Ethereum. Ethereum says that they're doing sharding. But if you really start to look at what they're saying, they're doing sharding, yes, but they're doing layer two also because that's the only direction that makes any sense. And what layer two really means is that uh, there's a sacrifice. It's, there's always this trade-off. There's a trade-off of a little bit of security for lower transaction fees and much more speed. And layer two comprises a lot of different technologies that are all kind of in competition right now. But the potential for layer two is many, many millions of transactions per second at fractions of a penny cost per transaction. I mean, that's what's going to be accomplished. Visa and MasterCard, what they're doing, that is a mere fraction of what we'll be able to do with cryptocurrency. That's amazing. And another thing I've been thinking about is how the Western world, we were introduced to credit card, uh, but other countries such as Africa, maybe parts of uh, Asia were not introduced to credit card and they can easily switch on from cash to straight away to mobile payments or crypto. So, uh, Plus, Jack Dorsey, as you know, is a big advocate of Bitcoin and he spent a few months in Africa as well. So do you think they have the potential to surprise the rest of the world? I think that they do. I know that uh, M-Pesa is extremely popular in some of these nations in Africa. Uh, it is the predominant payment method. And that started out just as, I believe, some kind of phone credits and it ended up being used as a currency. Um, but they're, yes, they're very much set up for uh, just in general for their infrastructure is already based on digital token technology for them to move over to an actual cryptocurrency is a very small step for them. So we're seeing um, some companies are focusing on that. Cardano is very focused on Africa. 
you look at uh, Horizon, they're focused on Latin America. Nervos is focused on the Asia regions. Um, when we see adoption there, all of them seem to be stronger than the United States in, at this point. And part of that is because the United States took the lead in, in, a, in credit card advancement, right, of this technology. And they've ingrained that so deeply now that it's hard to get rid of. But these other, these other areas are much more, um, they're, they're much more accepting of new technology. And that's why we're seeing higher adoption rates there. Talking a bit more about regulation, why do you think regulation is not as good? Is it because of the dark markets that crypto allows? There's a lot of transactions that the governments wouldn't want to allow. And how does Bitcoin facilitate this? Right. Yeah, this is a very large topic here. Um, let's start with the dark market thing, though, is I don't believe that the dark markets are being powered by cryptocurrency and thriving because of cryptocurrency necessarily like the headlines show. Uh, because you have to remember that cryptocurrency is just a better form of money. The reasons why yeah. some criminals use it is because it's better money, not because it's necessarily making their life that much easier. When you're talking about something like smuggling some type of uh, you know, illegal substance or weapons or something into a country, it's still going through <clears throat> the same mail system, right? Cryptocurrency hasn't changed any of that. Law enforcement is still operating the same way they used to. So, so dark markets are not there. While I, I would be hard put to say they're not benefiting in some way. Yes, they're benefiting because it's better money. Um, they're not being 100% enabled by cryptocurrency. Um, the same types of things would be going on just the same if cryptocurrency didn't exist. And they have in the past. Yeah. Like who hasn't been offered drugs? Like I, I, I've never done drugs in my life. It doesn't mean it hasn't been offered to me. Like it's been offered to me on the street. I was just minding my own business. Somebody started yelling in my car window, do you want to buy weed? I mean, it just happens, right? That's just the way the world is. Um, and then there's, there's also headlines in the dark markets about dark markets, about things that are extremely illegal. Like I've seen nuclear weapons for sale in dark markets, right? They don't actually exist. You got to realize yeah. <laughs> these headlines are not being realistic here. If you were to send money to somebody for a nuclear bomb, there's two possibilities. The more likely one is you send your money and nothing comes your way. Or number two, the FBI comes to your front door. You're not going to be able to buy a nuclear weapon. That's just the way it is. Yeah. That's, even, that's even insane to think about. Like, where would you keep it? What would you do with it? <laughs> uh, uh, with privacy coins, aren't they more likely to get banned by governments just because of their anonymity? Yes, they are. And it, yeah, and in some countries they have. I believe in Germany they banned uh, most privacy coins and other countries as well. And, they, you know, it's very understandable. Uh, I, I think that with, um, with governments in particular, when they see a new technology come back, uh, come through and they don't know how to control it, it's usually a knee-jerk reaction for them to say no first, right? Because if they're just to allow it, they don't understand it. They don't know if they can control it properly. So privacy coins is a very touchy subject, right? I ultimately see the benefit of this, as in uh, I believe that privacy is an inherent thing that everybody should be entitled to. Um, governments don't really like that. You know, they like, especially the United States, loves to watch everything you're doing. Everything on the internet is recorded somewhere, right? We know that you'd have no privacy at all. And there's unfortunate you know, dystopian aspects to that 
which start to occur over time when, when privacy is completely eroded and we start to lose our, lose our civil liberties. So I, I can't say that there's, there is a really a, and a, a direction that I think that all the entire world's gonna go on this. Some of them are probably going to keep it banned. I don't know necessarily will the, the United States stance on that. Uh, I hope they don't. It's, it is a possibility that they will though. It's really hard to say. Seen Bitcoin being adopted more in the recent past. And do you think the smart money is thinking about the purchasing power going forward? With, as you talked about the excessive money printing, 22% of the entire US dollar circulation has been printed in 2020. So will there be a faster than usual shift to cryptocurrencies just because of the events we had? Because smart money is going to eventually realize that purchasing power is eroding at an exponential rate. I think that there will be a, a big move to cryptocurrency as well as other assets. I mean, there's uh, big moves to gold as well. You know, one of the people I listen to a lot and have a lot of respect for is Peter Schiff, who's huge on precious metals. I believe that there's a lot of truth to what he says. I also think he's completely wrong about cryptocurrency, yeah. but, yeah. <laughs> but you should be buying and you should probably be di diversifying as well. Like you should not be going 100% on cryptocurrency. You know, I'm very big on cryptocurrency, but I would never tell somebody to absolutely go just one way. There's a lot of value to the potential of metals as well and other assets as well. You know, there's all kinds of things you can be investing in. Real estate is another one, which very questionable at this point. We may see another housing crash, but, you know, that's to be yeah. in the future. The really the important thing here is that you need to get your money out of the dollar. Unfortunately, we're seeing some, there's, there is no possible way that we will not see huge levels of inflation from this, right? We've seen this every time that money is printed, we see inflation. And now we're seeing money printing accelerating at a rate that has never occurred before. 22% in one year, that qualifies under most definitions as hyperinflation, right? We, you cannot get away from this. If you are not moving your money out of the dollar, you are being financially irresponsible with your future right now. Does that mean just the US dollar or most of the fiat? Well, pretty much all of them at this point. I mean, they're all fiat. They're all losing value at, at different levels. Um, the United States has had the benefit of, of uh, being the reserve currency for the world. But like if, uh, and that's one of the reasons that it has been around so long and it's been able to be strong. But if you look at what's happening around the world, we're seeing the governments and central banks load up on gold, load up on other assets. I haven't heard of any loading up on cryptocurrency yet, but I'm, that's probably a possibility as well. Like it, it's, it's, you know, the, there's a lot of delusion out there but I don't believe that the governments of the world are completely ignorant to the risks that they're putting themselves against, right? I think that they are looking at this situation, especially countries like China, who have been shifting away from the dollar for the reserve for many years now. They see that this collapse is a very real possibility. They see that probably that a collapse of all fiats around the world is a real possibility, and they know they need to get away from it. But at the same time, they know if they pull it too fast, if they pull the rug, everybody's just going to fall over. So they're trying to do it slowly. There's two areas that I'm aware of that actually have a tremendous amount of uh, bubble inflation, I would call it. Like they're largely being propped up. Uh, one is the stock market and the other is housing right now. Uh, and we're also seeing a lot of inflation in food as well. Um, it, it's pretty obvious, especially with housing and food, that these two are starting to get into you know bubble areas because 
they are excluded from the inflation statistics that the United States publishes. Right, the United States, in their interest, they want to show low inflation. They want to print as much money as they can while showing low inflation. So they purposely exclude certain things from their calculation. And this has changed over time. This is different than it was back in the 70s, right? This, they have excluded housing and they've excluded food. And they say because it's too volatile, that's their excuse. But here's the thing, like you could say it's volatile in the short term. When you're looking back years, it's not volatile anymore. That's what happened but it's not putting it back into the calculation. It's never included. It's because that's where the bubble is. They don't want to show it. And you can just try, you can track it yourself. Just over time, I'm sure you've probably noticed the portion size gets smaller and all of a sudden the price gets higher. Like I've seen remarkable levels of that in the last year. And the housing market, just like it crashed in 2008 to probably where it should have been. That wasn't a sick market. That was a realistic market. Yeah. And then the bubble got reinflated again. All those subprime mortgages and stuff that were made illegal, they're all back again. They're just In, under yeah. different names. Exactly. It's 100% yeah. the same thing that it's always been. So when you talk about bubbles, they didn't get fixed. Like I have family members who never recovered since 2008. The, the economy didn't really get fixed at all. Nothing did. It's just been propped up. It's amazing that it's, been, it's able to go this long. But part of that is because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world we're effectively draining and putting our burdens on the rest of the world. Everybody who uses the currency outside of the United States is helping shoulder the burden of what we've created here. Yeah, bubbles are everywhere. <laughs> it's probably gonna be called uh, oh, everything bubble. Absolutely. Every, it, it, absolutely, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, the bubbles are insane. Yeah, the house I'm in right now is at an all time high, but also at the same time, one out of every five FHA loans right now is in default. Like, how are these two things together? This bubble is insane. Yeah. And I feel like anytime, if the Fed even just hints of an interest rate hike, everyone's going to pull up. That's, that's probably one of the biggest catalysts. But what can they do? Like, eventually they will have to raise it up. Otherwise, there is no point of having an interest rate anyways. That's absolutely like, true. And I, I think that they're just, unfortunately, they're running out of options here, right? There's no good solutions anymore. It's just what is the least bad solution? Uh, the debt use, U.S. debt cannot be paid. And yeah. it, it, it's, there's no other option at this point other than to just print more and more money. This is yeah. the same story that's happened time and time again in many other countries throughout history. It always ends the same way. It ends in hyperinflation and out of control money printing. Yeah. For example, the Roman Empire, they they were thriving at one point and then the war came along, they printed excess money and then look what happened. So you talked a lot about Peter Schiff and how his views on the economy is. Why do you think he can't understand Bitcoin? Not just him, there's Red Dalio who talks a lot about economic policies and geo, um, geopolitics, but he never mentions Bitcoin. And especially Peter Schiff, he hates Bitcoin. <laughs> Why do you, if you, okay, right. if, you, if you get the chance to talk to him, do you think you can change his mind? I, at this point, I don't think I could change his mind. And I have actually, I have met him and I have shaken his hand before, but I think he's, he, is, um, he is so far down the rabbit hole of hating Bitcoin that it, he, there's no way back for him. Right. It, yeah. There's no way there, there may be a hope in convincing him on cer certain other cryptocurrencies, but not Bitcoin. And, you know, he's also, you got to realize that he owns a company that uh, sells gold. 
um, and gold and other precious metals. So it's in his interest to believe that, um, that he's, he's created the best possible option for his investors. And to his credit, it's not a bad angle. I think that he operates a very good company and that, you know, it's, it's also good to own precious metals, but he's, he's biased here. And I don't think that there's any way out for him to change his mind. He's not, he's shown repeatedly in very embarrassing ways on Twitter that he's, he's technology incompetent and he can't understand it. He, did, he couldn't tell the difference between his password and his pin, and he thought he lost his Bitcoin, but he didn't. You know, it was a catastrophe on Twitter. Uh, you, know, I, I you know, I really like the guy. I really respect him, but he just doesn't understand the technology. He, he can't understand what he's looking at. If I was to ask an 18-year-old, they would much rather prefer to invest in digital gold than gold because I feel like the next generation understands, would understand cryptocurrency more than actual gold because actual gold you have to to invest in it safely in, instead of in Texas, you actually have to go to bullions and store it separately, whereas crypto is just like very easy. I mean, it's very evident at this point when you look at the communities involved with cryptocurrency, it tends to be the younger generations for sure. Uh, there's a couple outliers in the older generations that have that are the smart money that truly understand it. But there's a remarkable number of them that don't understand it. And they're, they're hung up on this aspect that it has to be something that you can hold in your hand. But that's not really the value of money. Money has never yeah. been that. It's not that it's, not that it's a physical aspect. You look all the way back to the way money has had been handled with, for example, there's a tribe, I can't remember, the ones that used the rye stones, the, the giant rocks with a hole in the middle, right? That was their money system. And they had this big giant rock uh, with a hole in the middle that was like one of the biggest pieces of money and it was too big to move. Right, so it's not the physical aspect. This this rock just sat there, but it had value in their money system, and they had another one that somebody they were shipping it somewhere and it fell off into the ocean, right? And it was never to be seen again. But they decided to continue to use it in their money system, even though it was at the bottom of the ocean, right? It's never been the physical aspect. When you when you talk to somebody like Peter Schiff and you you ask him the questions, you know, what do you do with your gold? It's just being stored in a safe. He's never used. He's never used it for anything. He's nah. not making jewelry. You know, he's not making electronics out of it. That's not the value. The value isn't in the physical representation of it. That's not what money is. And so, so that's the divergence here. That's what I think that the younger generations seem to understand is that money is a concept. It is not a physical thing. Why is it still hard for people to understand crypto? Is there? Is it because it's too technical, or is it because they're not putting enough effort? into understanding the technology, just like how people call internet the Fed for context. Right. Well, I, I think that it's very foreign. Um, in fact, many of the, the technical people that I know that are very intelligent, uh, very good engineers, they still don't understand cryptocurrency and they don't know how to apply it properly. Uh, they don't understand blockchain. They don't know how to apply it. It's very foreign. The way that we're thinking about systems today in a distributed state is completely different than the centralized systems that we're all used to, right? It, it requires a completely different way of thinking and you have to really you know, shift away around your thinking for a long time. Like for me, this is something that you know, I'm good at now, but for me to understand what a blockchain was and how to apply it, it this was a process that took me several years to truly understand. It didn't happen overnight. And a lot of the materials and the videos out there, they're only scratching the surface of what's actually the knowledge you really need to truly understand it, right? This is something that the people who are involved with it, 
that really understand it. it. The only reason they can understand it at that level is because they've been involved for years. And so for the average person to, to really understand, I don't expect them to, not for a very, very long time. Just like with the internet, like the internet has been around for decades now. My father still can barely use it, all right? He's never catching up, right? And there's <laughs> a lot of people out there that are just the same as gonna be true with cryptocurrency. Maybe yeah. one day if it's in the Apple wallet or something, they'll be able to use it. But I don't think they're ever gonna truly understand it or be able to appreciate it. And the, the truth of the matter is that they shouldn't have to. It should be that easy and inexpensive yeah. to use that everybody can use it and they don't have to think about it anymore. So that's where we need to go. That's where we need to evolve this technology to be able to accomplish that. It's a continuous process and there isn't any shortcut here. Uh, this is something you know, that me and my coworkers at Nervos, so, you know, we're, we're dealing with the cutting edge technology every day and it's tough. We get, a lot of, we get a lot of cuts dealing with this stuff. We have to make a lot of revisions. Uh, we're, we're truly going on a path that hasn't been done before. And the same can be said about every other you know, a community out there. Cardano's pioneering different aspects of truly remarkable technology. And so is Ethereum. It, it, there isn't any shortcut around it. A lot of us thought that this stuff was going to be done much earlier. You can see quotes on Twitter from Vitalik mm -hmm. and Charles Hoskinson about how they were about to release Ethereum 2.0 and, and you know, the Shelly decentralization about to launch. And then nothing happened for two years, right? And now we're seeing headlines about Ethereum, Ethereum's you know, true sharding and stuff not happening for another five years or something. That's the unfortunate reality is that this stuff is so complicated and so different that even the greatest minds in our space right now can't accomplish this stuff overnight. It's going to take much longer than we, we all hope, but we will get there eventually. What are some areas you'd like to see developed within the crypto community and the technology overall? Would you like to see more people coming into the uh, blockchain industry? Would you like it to be more available for school curriculums? I think there's just a lot of space that, um, a lot of different areas we could use support, of course. I mean, a big part of it is just the um, industry, I mean, the um, Investment by institution, institutional investment is a big one. Yes. Like you touched on it earlier that, you know, some of the companies are starting to wise up and they're putting it on their books. That's just smart money. I mean, they see the potential in it, right? And we're going to see more and more about the, of that over time. And by bringing in that capital, we're bringing in attention, more and more attention. Um, you know, there's, of course, also room for everybody from... <clears throat> people who are hobbyists or, or developers who want to build projects. On, there's, there's no shortage of work to be done. There's a tremendous amount out there and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for those who actually want to capitalize in it. I mean, we're, Bitcoin is maybe 10 years old, but this is still you know, pretty much the wild west when you talk about cryptocurrency yeah. in general, blockchain in general. Uh, there's still a huge amount of work to be done and there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of recognition that can be gained if you truly believe in the space like you're, you can be here and be you know, one of the early founders. Coming in today, you're still one of the earliest people into it because the entire world doesn't even know what it is yet, right? They may have heard of it, they don't know how to use it properly. And you can help build part of that future. You started off with the Bitcoin initially, then you went to Ethereum, then you went to Horizon, and then Cardano, and now Novos. So how did that evolve? Yeah, that's... Um, I wouldn't say that I actually really ever fully moved on from any of them, right? I, I see, I consider myself to be largely a agnosticist when I, when I talk about cryptocurrencies. 
Um, and like my, my hope is that one day cryptocurrency will be uh, adopted worldwide and it doesn't necessarily matter to me which one wins, you know, necessarily. I think there's actually room for all of them. So with Bitcoin in particular, let's start there. Um, it, it didn't, it, it, it was not a good feeling to lose all of my Bitcoin, you know, when, when that crashed. That, that absolutely put a damper on my mood for a little while. Um, but it was really the, the technology limitations and un, being unable to do any kind of programmability, it was kind of a turnoff. Um, and while I'm still, I'm still bullish on Bitcoin, I'm still bullish on all cryptocurrency, uh, as a software engineer myself, Ethereum became much more interesting. And so then with some of the other ones, the communities I took part in, you know, the, the Horizon and Zcash in particular, uh, that was also an, the, um, it was the privacy aspect that drew me to it, the interest in just the technology itself. And I don't consider myself to have ever left any of these communities, really. Uh, you know, I'm still an investor in, I still have some Bitcoin, I still have a lot of Ethereum, and uh, I've just moved on to different projects where I felt my skill set could be best applied. And so, like with Nervos, I, I feel my skill set is probably the, the most compatible that it's ever been because it's such a, a new community with a, such a new direction in what they're trying to do that uh, it really, you know, my background in uh, is particularly with startups was a very good fit for this company. And so once I saw some of the problems they were addressing, which on me really hit me on a personal level because they were concerns of mine, particularly with the, uh, the sustainability of certain projects in, in the long term. Um, it, it just kind of resonated with me in a way that no other project has. So, I mean, just to, to kind of sum that up, it always, it's been an evolution for me just in terms of where did I feel that I fit in the best at the time. But I never left any of these projects. I think they're all still great projects. That's great. So do you mind briefly explaining what Nervos is to the audience? Oh, yeah. So Nervos is a, a, another base layer technology. The best way that I can... Um, explain it is that it's very similar to Ethereum, but it's under the hood, it is remarkably different. What they did was they kind of had to re-engineer everything because we had a lot of lessons learned in Ethereum um, and in Bitcoin for that matter. And we hit some dead ends. Like it, Ethereum has some very bad scaling issues right now. And yeah. it's resulting in, in fees that are uh, just unbelievably high. <laughs> like for example, um, I was talking to uh, somebody else in the community recently, and he had a single transaction during a busy period where I think he said it cost him about $90 in transactions Ooh. for one transaction just to move some coins around. And unfortunately, he had to pay it because he needed it moved immediately. Uh, this kind of congestion will kill most projects. Um, if you had any type of a game or something built on Ethereum, nobody's using it anymore, right? These fees are just absolutely murdering it. Um, and so let's take a step back though. Like why does Ethereum exist? Ethereum existed because you couldn't do things on Bitcoin. Um, Vitalik actually tried to build Ethereum on Bitcoin. That was his original vision. He just wanted to build a scripting system, but he found out that it was too difficult to do that. Uh, there was too much politics involved and also just the way that the chain was designed it was too difficult. It was, it was much easier approach to start all over again, build an entirely new community and a new chain. And he accomplished a great amount of stuff with that. I mean, Ethereum is fantastic, but now we're hitting the end of the road again, right? There's all these issues about what, which direction should you go for various things? What, what's gonna help get these fees down? 
you know, how are we going to accomplish sharding? You know, and how, what about state rent is a big one. The, the size of the state is becoming unsustainable. And these are still things, open questions. Well, the, the team behind Nervos, some of them were, you know, all involved with Bitcoin and Ethereum, the Ethereum core team as well. And they just decided you know, once again, they had to start all over again because they found solutions to these problems, but these, these solutions didn't fit on top of Ethereum. It's really not that they believe that they're in strong competition. It's just they believed that they couldn't accomplish it on top of what was already pre-existing. So they decided to build another chain. So Nervos to me is very similar to Ethereum in that it does a lot of similar things today. In the future, the use cases, as they start to really you know, get down to it you know, at a level that we don't see today, where the particulars really matter, we'll probably see some divergence where one is actually better than the other. But when you look at it today, they do about the same thing. The difference here is the sustainability. The way that Nervos operates is long-term sustainable. You won't see these, these insane fees comes up, come up and you won't have the rug pulled on you, to say to speak, with when certain changes occur. Like I said, on Ethereum, there's one big problem, which is the state rent. And we don't fully understand how it's going to be accomplished. You can't pay once and store forever, right? That model doesn't work. It's not realistic. Um, and when you talk about Ethereum, we're using the account model. This could, this is a problematic because a developer, if they have an application that all of a sudden gets 100,000 users, they may have to, stay, to pay the state rent for all 100,000 users that could take down their company, right? We don't fully understand what the consequences of these are because they haven't been decided yet. But on Nervos, all of this stuff is clearly mapped out in a way that makes sense where every user pays for every asset that they possess. So, and they pay for it in a completely transparent way where they actually pay through targeted inflation that effectively, um, it, it takes it out of their balance uh, without them having to do anything automatically. And at the same time, it's targeted only at the users which are consuming space, which means you have the, the benefits of, um, for example, Bitcoin with a limited supply cap. You have those same benefits uh, on Nervos because it's only if you're actually using it to take up space on the state that you actually pay through inflation. So anyway, I'm giving a very bad summary here There's a, of Nervos. No, it's, got, it's truly, the reason I'm with this company is because it's truly a remarkable angle on some of the things that they've done. Like I encourage everybody to take a look at the white paper. It's one of, it's one of the most easy to read white papers I've actually ever seen. And I've read a lot of them. Some of them are the most boring, difficult things to read. Nervos is one is actually very easy. Uh, they've, they've really outdone a lot of things on this thing, this project. It's, it's remarkable. That's the reason why I'm happy to be a part of this company. You know, I could have, I had a choice of a lot of different companies I could have worked for, um, there's no place I'd rather be right now. Like they're doing great things. That's great to hear. So as far as I understand, Novos is more accommodating to developers and the people who use it. And they help them scale without, with less transaction fees. That's right. Less transaction fees, much more flexibility at the base layer. You're not going to get stuck, uh, you know, having to wait for a hard fork for certain features. Um, they've really thought through a lot of the things that have caused people, developers, dead ends on other platforms and, and put it together in this cohesive way that, that really has the best chance of being sustainable. When we talk about blockchains, we're talking about projects we hope will go for hundreds of years in theory, right? Yeah. Well, when you start looking at the realistic things, you're seeing that after a couple of years, they're already becoming unsustainable.
right? Nervos has put a lot of thought into how we could actually accomplish this for a chain that does last decades, possibly centuries. Say, for example, 10, about five years down the road with Nervos, if you find out some major flaws, can you fix it or do you have to start it all over again? Well, just like with any of these projects, you know, blockchains are remarkably hard to change. And so they're, they're all subject to some of the same things where if there was a huge, huge flaw, you'd have to have go through this patching process and possibly do hard forks. And, you know, there's always the danger of splits and kind of, there's, there's no way around that. So I would say that yeah. Nervos is not immune to that. The one thing that they have as a benefit though, is that at the smart contract level, you could say, they're emulating hardware. They're emulating what's known as the RISC-V architecture. That's kind of like the ARM processor that's in your phone or the you know, x86 processor in your computer. There's another one called RISC-V. And so they're emulating that. And not, they're not just providing a platform, they're effectively providing you a full computer environment. You see, you can't go any lower than that. What they're, they provided to the developer gives you full level of flexibility here. There's no, there's no way to go any lower. You can't provide any more flexibility. They're giving you a full computer, right? Yeah. So they're preventing some of that pain, hopefully down the line, that when, when we do hit the potential for roadblocks of something that needs to be changed, of course, you're going to have to go through the hard fork process. But we have, we're giving so much power to the developers that we hope that the need to actually do that will be very, very infrequent. So there's, there's lessons learned with every one of these projects. And, you know, the people who started up Nervos, they're veterans. You know, they've been in all of these since the beginning, just like me. And they've really thought through this stuff. They've really tried to make it as sustainable as possible. And they're very much of the opinion that once we have technology that does evolve over time, we should adopt that technology. There's no super hard ideology, right? Like, for example, Bitcoin says proof of work, we will never switch, right? Doesn't matter what yeah. happens. It's always going to be proof of work. Um, if, if that's not something that exists in Nervos, they chose proof of work because they said, this is the best technology right now for what we're doing in particular. And then they have this whole white paper on why that is. And they're one of the people that made me realize that proof of work's lifetime has not run out yet. Proof of stake has a lot of potential. I, you know, I'm also very bullish on proof of stake. I believe it should be continue to be researched. And that might be the future for Nervos one day, once it's truly proven itself. But, you know, proof of work at this time is still the best option. So I, I completely back their direction in choosing that for right now. Uh, but like I said, everybody in the company shares a, a unified vision in using whatever technology is the best at the right time. They want to make smart decisions. It's not, it's not blind ideology here. See, you said Nobos was actually suiting to your skill. So how do you actually find projects you're passionate about? Right. Well, that's kind of a, that's a, a much bigger question just a, on what do you actually, what drives your own passion, right? And that's, that's a tough question to answer because that's a, different for every person. And how do you actually discover that is going to be different for every person? It's kind of interesting. I've been thinking about a lot of things more recently about, about the past and stuff. And part of it, it's about just getting nostalgia. I'm sure you've seen like there's the Matrix 4 trailers came <laughs> out, right? Yeah. It made me start thinking about the matrix and things that were going on back in 1999 and thinking about who I, who I was back then and how I've evolved over time, uh, learning about myself. And it made me come to realize, and when talking to some of my friends, I actually just talked to an old high school friend very recently that I hadn't talked to in 20 years. 
And um, in talking to him, I, I, it's, it's interesting. You start to see traits uh, about people, things that were the same in middle school. When me and him were in middle school, they're the same today. Some things very yeah. much change, but like the core values are still there. The thing is like when you're, when you are, you know, young, when you're in your teens, you don't understand what those are. You don't know what your core values are. Uh, but so that's something that you need to pay attention to. You need to find out what is important to you. And once you actually find out what you, is important to you, that's your step. That's your guiding principle on finding something that you truly care about. There's an unlimited amount of work in this world that needs to be done in all different directions, right? There's, for somebody who's interested and, you know, and a hard worker, you can find a career there, but you have to know who you are first. If you're just chasing dollars, you're going to get led down the wrong path. And you know, I've made that mistake just as I'm sure many other people have. Uh, you have to figure out what's important to you. What, what, do you, what wakes you up in the morning that you, you get excited about, that you're, you're eager to go do? Like, you know, where I am right now is, is really an ideal situation in me. I wake up every day energized just because I want to I better myself and I want to better the world around me. And, you know, and, and because I'm in technology, I'm getting to accomplish that, you know, by working in cryptocurrency where I get to do both. It's, it's you know, it's, I feel that I'm very fortunate. Uh, you know, I hope that more people will actually take the time to really think about what's important to them because there's, there's, there's a lack of people in every industry, including cryptocurrency too. Like if this is something you care about, if you really, if you're here to, you know, bring financial, uh, this freedom to the world and you care about technology, like there's a, there's a huge amount of opportunity here, right? You know, it doesn't, you don't, not necessarily Lamborghinis, all right? Let's not let's forget <laughs> about the Lambos, all right? You shouldn't be doing it for the money, but if you're actually interested in building technology that matters to the world in the long term, I mean, there's no better place to be in my opinion. All of the parts when I read your bio that I found most interesting was, if I was to win the lottery today, I would start 10 new companies tomorrow. I have no intention of ever retiring. I found that to be really inspiring just because most people think that once they have a nest egg, a sufficient nest egg, they can just kick back, relax and enjoy life. But what they don't think about is, are their lives meaningful? Would you like to talk more about that? Yeah, well, well yeah, thank you for mentioning that, yeah. Um, when I say that, I, I want to say that it is, it is absolutely true, but uh, the timeline for that is not 100% accurate. If I did win the lottery, it, I would probably start with a vacation, okay? I would start with a vacation, travel for a few months, really decide what companies I wanted to start, and then, yes, I would start as many companies as I could and keep them all going as long as I could. Uh, there's, for, me, for me, being alive is being able to create things. Uh, just sitting around and and watching TV, that is a, a meaningless existence. Uh, and uh, for me, it is technology that allows me to create. So that's my avenue. That's where I found my passion. And sitting on a beach, uh, you know, drinking a martini or something, that might be fun for a little bit, but I, I can't see myself being anywhere else, ultimately. Uh, I mean, what I do every day is what I want to do. I mean, I generally tend to do some work on weekends as well. It's because this is just what I do. It's who I am. My career and who I am as a person are the same thing. Um, it's, it's never really, it's, it's always been that way to an extent. And I should say that there was a period 
when I was working a corporate job where I kind of hated my life and hated my job. But that was, that was an unfortunate, uh, unfortunate circumstances of me being in the wrong place, working for the wrong people with the wrong people, people who didn't care about what they were doing. And um, once I got out of that, I realized, you know, that that wasn't the end of the world. That wasn't, that wasn't, you know, what the potential of having a real career was. And, you know, for, so the, the, I want to say that the flip side is also true. My career is part of my life, but my life is also part of my career. And so I take a very, uh, you know, a very strong stance on health and fitness as well, which I believe you said that you have a strong interest in well. Um, yeah. We, um, it, it's part of my life. I believe that my actual, you know, eating healthy and working out every day, that's not just me enhancing myself, that's actually benefiting my career. You know, that's making sure that, that I'm at my best and that I'm thinking completely clearly, you know, um, clearly every day. Like the science has already been there for a very long time, right? We know that exercise is a requirement of being cognitive, cognitively capable in the long term, especially as we get older. So, I mean, it, the two are the same to me. My career and my life are the same thing. I wouldn't have it any other way. There's plenty of opportunities, especially in the fintech world and the cryptocurrency world, for someone who's confused on what they want to do and they have a, for example, say they have a very brief interest in cryptocurrencies, blockchain, they're just mildly curious, but they lack the technical expertise yet or have no coding experience. What would you tell them? Yeah, I would suggest that they first just start trying to get involved in various communities, right? There's plenty of them. The Ethereum community is huge and inviting. The Bitcoin community is huge, less inviting, but still huge. <laughs> You know, smaller communities have more opportunities. Like if you get involved, like if you are already a technically capable person and you think that you have the ability to make a difference, taking a, a part in a smaller community, especially one that's in its infancy like Nervos, you can make a bigger impact, right? You'll stand out more. You'll have more opportunity there than you would potentially in something like Ethereum where you may just fall into the background. But ultimately, wherever you go, just being involved in the communities and talking to as many people as possible is one of the most important things you can do. I mean, this is, this is something that I, the mistake that I made in my career was just simply not interacting with people enough, right? You know, I'm, I'm one of those people, those software engineers that like to sit in the back room and just write code every day, right? There's a lot of us like that. A lot of people at my company too that like to do that. We kind of have to pull them out of the closet sometimes and say, hey, you got to interact with people, right? That's what you have to do in this world. That's what you have to do. People want to know you is the thing you've got to realize. They want to know who you are. They want to know what you can do. And until you get out there and you start showing people that they don't know that, they can't offer more opportunities to you until they know that. So you have to get out there and we're in the middle of this pandemic thing still. So you probably won't be able to go to too many meetups, but you know, there's yeah. still plenty of people online that you can interact with. They're all, they're there every day, you know, and they want to hear from you. That's great advice. So anything that you would have liked to do differently if you were given the choice to do it all over again? I mean, okay, you can't, you can't use, Okay, except the cold storage. You can't use that one. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, there's so many things, so many things throughout history. But I think that the number one thing that I would change um, in my career, both in uh, cryptocurrency and technology and everything, was just be to focus on things that are, are much more 
important and invisible too. I've worked on a lot of projects. Like I mentioned that I, I did a lot of things anonymously and I operated uh, in these communities anonymously. You know, I come from a different time where early on when I was a really annoying teenager on the line, trash talking everybody on the internet, uh, people would dox me at times and like they'd, I'd get threatening phone calls and stuff. I was being a stupid snotty kid, all right? So <laughs> I, made, <laughs> I made it a habit to always be anonymous. Um, and, but the times have changed, right? I grew out of that phase and social networks blew up. It, it was not unusual for people to use their real identities on the internet. And that's, that's a powerful thing, right? You, you as an individual are the number one marketing tool that you have. To open up these opportunities, you need to be visible. You need to make your projects visible. And so that's, that's the thing that I would change, number one. You know, and also so probably some of the projects I worked on too. I worked on a number of very questionable, stupid little things when I should have been working on the important ones. You know, it's, it's managing your time better and putting it into projects that actually matter um, and playing a lot less video games. Shouldn't have done <laughs> that much. You know? But don't you think that inspired you to create those video games in the first place? It did. It, it was a stepping stone for sure. But, you know, there's a couple years of my life in my, te my early teens that I can't remember anything other than video games, you know, and uh, it could have been, I was a young guy, but you know, it's, there could have been time well spent other places. Great. So finally wrapping things up, what do you see the world of cryptocurrency in the next 10 years or to make it better? What would you like to see? In the next 10 years, I think that we're going to see some really big things happen in, in uh, the space. Uh, the first is I think that the, the layer two solutions that I mentioned earlier are probably going to come to fruition, which means that um, we're going to see scaling become a thing of the past. We're going to see massive millions of transactions per second happen on multiple different platforms. So that's going to be out of the way. Uh, I think we're also going to see a lot of moves forward in usability. Um, I don't know if we're gonna, in the next decade, that's a long time. I think that there's still, that's a very long road. Um, and that certain things that we've been talking about in the space, like for example, tokenized assets, the ability to um, take your house and turn it into tokens and auction it off as pieces, use a piece of your house to pay for something at Starbucks, that may start to, to, to melt down. We may start to see a reduction in friction and those type of things. And the interesting thing about that, especially that example in particular, is that it's actually already to, done today. It sounds like a foreign concept. It's not. People, you know, they take out loans against their house all the time. Then they're using that to pay their credit cards and their credit cards are buying their coffee. It's the same thing. We can just do it better in cryptocurrency. We can do it directly. And so those types of, of, of infrastructure to be able to accomplish the tokenization of assets, we see that being built up all around us, but this is a very long process. And it's something that will occur probably in the next 10 years, but uh, well beyond that. And then the last thing I should throw in there is, I think the, the uh, connectivity between different blockchains. Um, right now we see kind of walled ecosystems. You have the Bitcoin, you have the Ethereum, you have the other ecosystems out there. They're all kind of, they're not really talking very well to each other. Um, but the technology, we see that being built right now. And I think within the next 10 years, definitely it's, it's going to be one in the same. You're going to be able to move your assets between all these different platforms pretty much seamlessly 
And all of a sudden, like the friction that I'm talking about, the things that make these things difficult for mass adoption, you're going to start to see them erode slowly over the next decade. Amazing. That's, that's great. And yeah, we've talked, uh, we've gone in depth and we've talked a broad range of topics. So with respect to your time, let's wrap it up. And any final words you want to leave the audience with, including where they can actually find you and what they can expect from you? Right. Well, you know, like I said, being out there and being involved in communities is very important. So like if anybody wants to contact me directly, you know, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you know, you can add me on LinkedIn. You can add me on Twitter. Uh, my website is jordanmac.info if anybody wants to look for me. Um, but please do not just add me on, on LinkedIn without sending me a message too. I want to actually know that you're a real person and you're not a bot <laughs> out there or something. Please tell me that you listen to this podcast. And uh, absolutely, you know, I'm, I'm willing to talk to anybody who's interested in becoming part of the crypto industry, uh, you know, and guiding you through the process. You know, we're all out here at trying to change the world and we need more people. So please, please, if you're interested, speak up and, you know, reach out. Yeah, thank you. And all the best with all your projects. Take Great. care. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something new from this episode. If you did, make sure you like, comment and subscribe. And if you know anyone who would benefit from the content we covered today, make sure you share it with them and add some value to their life. Have a blessed day and take care.